0: When you share your feelings, you, you're you connecting to your spouse and you're getting better at identifying and communicating your feelings. That's a skill you can have. But if not, you will do, men tend to do what we're good at. And if you're not good at something, you don't do it. Well, you don't get good unless you practice. But if you don't practice, you stay not good. And then so your wife is not hearing your heart. You're not hearing her heart. And listen, if you want your woman to talk to you and you want her to open up sexually, you got to learn how to do feelings.
1: All right, Dr. Weiss, welcome to the Man Talk Show. How are you doing today?
0: You know I'm doing fantastic, Connor. How are you doing, man? I'm doing good. Yeah, I'm doing very good. I got
1: my workout in this morning. Played with my boy. too. <laughs> I got to swim, got to work out, got to do treadmill.
0: Man, I'm ready to rock and roll.
1: Awesome, awesome. That's that's good stuff. I know I normally don't do like early morning podcasts for whatever reason. Usually I record in the afternoons. But we're doing like the first thing this morning, which is which is it's kind of nice. I've got my coffee. This is a good way to start the day. You know, having a having an in depth conversation. So. Before we talk about what we're going to talk about, I'm going to start with the big question, which is tell us a story about a defining moment in your life that made you who you are today.
0: Well, especially you know what we're talking about. You know, I grew up; I was conceived in adultery. So, and my mom got divorced, and then she married another guy, and then then they got divorced, and then you know, I was uh, maybe ish, twelve ish, and now in my house, we we I never saw a book. There was not a book in the entire house, okay? But my mom walks in with a college textbook on human sexuality. So this is about, you know, 350 pages of academic sexuality, human sexuality book. Now, no idea how she got this book, but she hands it to me and she says, Doug, I think you should know this. Well, I don't know what, I don't, I don't remember reading any of it, but the pictures really were helpful and got me into the whole pattern of, you know, medicating myself through sex, through pornography, through masturbation, and, you know, getting into, the, getting into that uh, ritual of, of doing that. So that was a defining moment because I probably wouldn't have, like, come up with that by myself. That's fair. That is very fair. I, I,
1: I agree with that. I mean, it's, it's interesting because one of the things over the years, I've been working with men for a decade now, and, you know, guys from all over the world come into our ecosystem, and one of the interesting things, one of the things that we'll often do is we'll, we'll ask a question like tell another man, you tell the guy that you're, you know, working with uh, the first story of your first sexual experience or tell this, tell the story of how you first learned about sex. Mm -hmm. And what's been wildly fascinating to me is how many guys one learn about sex through friends and friends, siblings, right? Older siblings. And two, how many guys in like my generation and the generations
0: before us found porn in the woods? In the woods, uh, on the highway, right? Their friend's garage, just random. F- yeah, it's not in the context of relationship. It's in the context of images and objects and stuff like that. And you know, the kids today, bless their hearts, it's on their phone. I mean, the worst oh. porn store ever in the history of yep. mankind ever is on their phone, and they're eight years old. You know, so it's a, it's a totally different day now yeah it's a pretty wild thing, and so I'm excited to dive into this into this
1: topic. You're the president of the American Association of Sex, Sexual Addiction Therapy. Maybe just tell the listener a little bit more about what got you further down that path and the, the type of treatments that the, the, the association sure. would deploy you know for people that are coming in. And, and maybe it'd be helpful for us to actually you know bring some definitions in around sexual addiction because I think you know what I've noticed is that in the last sort of ten years it's become a little bit more front and center and mainstream, but before that sex pornography was not classified as an addictive behavior, and it was something that I think a lot of people had shame around so
0: well it's been a, it's been an addictive behavior since mankind i mean so uh, it's been around way longer than hundreds of years, even Freud started to address it in his things but so we see that um you know sex addiction is someone who is actively medicating either past pain, current pain, or stress through some kind of sexual behavior, whether it's with themselves, with pornography, with images or objects, other people, other relationships, and they're doing it to medicate something. And so it's not about how frequently they're having sex. It's the why they're having sex. And Mm. uh, I'm the executive director of Heart Tart Counseling Center in Colorado Springs, and people flying from all over the world. We've been treating sex addicts for over 35 years, okay? And so, and seeing them get better. You know, one of the things I want to give your audience is there's hope. I've been sober now for 37 years, tested by a polygraph. Okay. No masturbation, no pornography, no sex outside of marriage. And so people can get free. So I know we're going to get into maybe the corners of this thing and the shadows of this thing, but like the beginning, I just want to let, let your audience know that no matter, you know, what they're struggling with, you know, whether it's prostitutes or masturbation or porn or, you know, secret chat rooms or whatever they're into Facebook, you know, cruising, you know, all that kind of stuff that you don't have to stay stuck you know, at all, well, what we're going to talk about today, you can get free, you can be free, you can have, a, you know, you cannot feel bad about yourself. You cannot have that anxiety. But if my wife or my mom or my friend finds out that, you know, I'm spending three hours a night looking at porn, you know, you know, you don't have to have that anxiety. And plus, here's a really cool thing, Connor, and will get back to your question is, most guys I work with have done five-day intensives for probably over two decades. I've been working with sex for over 35 years. Most guys who own their own business, control their own income, double their income or more in the first 12 months of being clean, you know, I mean that's exciting for most guys. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And so it really does affect you in every area of your life. It's not just like this little secret thing that you, you, know, you do and it has no impact on your wife. We could, I wrote a whole book on the impact, two books on how it impacts the, the partners of sex addicts. we we'll can talk about that maybe later, but mm-hmm. this is a real deal. And um, you know, Bill Clinton actually was the person who kind of moved the needle towards talking about it as an addiction. And ever since it's been, you know, I've been on Oprah, Dr. Phil, all those shows because it's a real issue, you know, for men and, and women, you know, but uh, for men, I mean, we're plagued with it right now just because of the easy access, the anonymity of the internet, the, you know, the porn industry has gone crazy on the internet and, uh, and men are getting introduced at an earlier age. I mean, you know, you're slightly younger than me, but at my age, you know, you had to go down and steal it, okay, <laughs> you know, 7-Eleven, distract the guy and steal a magazine, you couldn't even buy it. Right, and now we're at you know fourth graders and third graders downloading pornography in their classrooms, and so we're we're in a totally different generation of young men coming up that are being exposed way before their brain is able to handle that data.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's I think that's you're touching on a few really important pieces. I, I've been pretty open about my journey, like in my book. I, I wrote a book called Men's Work, and and in the book I talk about my story, and, and part of it is consistent infidelity mm-hmm. and heavy porn usage like a, a pretty mm-hmm. severe porn addiction in my late teens and early 20s and a, and a part of it was i found it early on i was like 14 mm-hmm. years old 13 14 years old we had dial up at home mm-hmm. and so it was you know it was pretty it was pretty shitty as far as porn goes mm-hmm. uh, it wasn't as readily accessible as it as it is today but you know it was just unchecked and it was very hard to censor and it was something that was incredibly easy to access. Or mm-hmm. Something that nobody knew about, and it seemed like a sort of a harmless indiscretion, you know, right. for a period of time. Until I got into my twenties, my early twenties, and it was really severe. You know, it was really, really bad and out of control. And so I, I see a lot of men dealing with that where something happens in their life, and the you know the usage of pornography starts to ramp up. Mm-hmm. Uh, or, you know, their, their usage of the, the sex, you know, sex and, and womanizing starts to ramp up. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's something interesting. I can't remember exactly what you said before, but it was something to the tune of, it's not that people are having, it's not that you're having sex. It's why you're having sex Absolutely. or some, some iteration of that. Can you speak a little bit more to that? Cause I think that that's pretty important uh, for laying the foundation.
0: The question that guys ask is like, you know, well, what if I just like sex and I have a high sex drive? Am I a sex addict? Well, of course not. But there's differences. A person who has a high sex drive is having relational sex. They're actually connecting spiritually and emotionally, and their full being is connecting to the full being of the woman, right? And we're connecting in the process. And if there's a level of satiation because my being has connected to your being. and whew, I feel so close to you, right? Where a sex addict is having sex in an altered state, in a disconnected state. Oftentimes, they can't even be present with the real person. They have to go to the fantasy world, imagine images or past sexual encounters or imagine things she's saying that she's never said so that they can get to an orgasm because they've conditioned themselves. We'll talk about this later in The Six Types, but they condition themselves to object relationship sex. Mm -hmm. And so even though they're using a person's body, they are having object relationship sex. And they're doing it again and again, and they don't get the level of satisfaction. So they always want more and more and more, not because they want to be more connected, but it's because they want to get a release. Going back to the teenage years when they were hurt or 80% have been sexually abused by men or women. A lot of guys think they got lucky when they were 14 and she was 18. Mm. Okay, that's called sexual abuse. It's a criminal act. Okay, (laughs) And so they don't realize it, but their body realizes it. Okay, they were used as a sex object. So they're having object relationship sex. That's the way they, they masturbate and stuff like that. And so it's a conditioning process, but they're actually having a different type of sex than someone who's having a high libido who wants to be connected to their woman. And it's that kind of thing. It's no, I want to get off.
1: Maybe just say a little bit more about the object relationship sex. Can you just define that for the listener? Because I think that's, that's also important to just have that parameter set.
0: Sure. Well, sex with an object is the great thing about an object is she always worships you. She does what she wants. She does exactly what you want her to do. She says exactly what you want her to say. She doesn't exist in real time. Okay. You have to manufacture her. Okay. Now you can put a collage of pornography images and stories together, but but she exists to serve you totally. Sex is all about you. It's not about giving and connecting. It's not about sharing and it costs you nothing emotionally. To have object relationship sex, mm-hmm. you don't have to give your heart. Object relationship sex, where in relational sex, you're with the woman who actually has, has her own needs, her own desires, her own voice, and you know, and you have to negotiate, and you have to work through that, and be with her, um, and so it's a totally different process. So object sex is really about you, you just getting your needs met. It's not about really being in a mutual situation. Mm-hmm. And so I, I'm unique in this, Connor. I have done at least five to six thousand masturbation porn histories. Okay, there's very few people with that. That kind of street crud, okay? When they come to my office, they fly, they they, they do appointments. I've been doing masturbation and porn histories with over 5,000 men. Mm -hmm. And most men train themselves on object relationship sex years before their first sexual encounter with a woman. And so when they go to the woman experience, they bring that with them. And if you're one of those guys who, you know, you're with your wife or your partner and you're still fantasizing during sex, you're still training yourself to object relationship sex, even though it's with the real body, okay? Because- the neurological reinforcement schedule is going to what you're seeing in your mind, and so if you're looking at something in your mind instead of looking at into her eyes or looking at her, you're gluing to it neurologically, not to her.
1: Yeah. So there's a there's a natural a natural separation between relational sex, mm-hmm. right? Relational mm-hmm. intimacy is what the here you could end up the, the the distinction of, and then the objective sex where the other person mm-hmm. is an object of your release, your satiation. Uh, an object of maybe a fantasy that you're playing out that you saw in porn or that you experienced in the past and their function, I guess you could say, to sort of make it sort of more logical, their function is just to serve that role. And you're not actually in relationship with them, you're in relationship with the fantasy. Is that roughly accurate? Very, very
0: accurate. Well said. And so when we, when we develop that way, so that's our sexual development. Now, in the masturbation histories, most guys have done that anywhere from one to 10,000 times. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. So neurologically, <laughs> their skill level was really high in object relationship. And that is usually the foundation of sexual addiction. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's going to the object, going to a boo-boo mommy. I call it boo-boo mommy, to get your needs met, to be unconditionally loved, to be wanted, to be vulnerable, to be dirty, to be controlled or controlling to have power or to be without power. So you go into this place oftentimes to balance yourself psychologically in some way.
1: Yeah, it's it's interesting because so my mentor has been working in Gestalt for 40 plus years in developmental psychology. And one of the things that is part of his framework, my framework now, is that all addiction are attachment issues. Mm-hmm. And I kind of hear you talking about this notion that when we don't feel safe to really attach or connect to somebody else, then in our framework, it's like when we can't attach to somebody else relationally, we attach to the object or the substance. And that becomes, that becomes our primary attachment. And that's why the this, this saying addiction is giving up everything for one thing, right? Is that we're so glued to this one attachment and we don't feel safe or trustworthy to actually attach in these other areas. I wonder how deep we should go into this object notion. Maybe we can go into a, a little bit further in a, in a moment. I want to double back though, and just make sure that we have defined sexual addiction in a very clear way for, for the listener, because I think that is really important. So what are those parameters based on you know, your work, your institute, and, and what you've seen? Because I think it's, it's kind of a loose thing out in the clinical world.
0: Right. Well, it's loose in all addictions because one guy using cocaine once a month is necessarily a sex act. Another guy could be a cocaine addict, mm-hmm. right? Drinking three beers might be an alcoholic, and the next guy drinking three beers might not be an alcoholic. Okay, so it is a little, okay? Now, in, in my experience, whenever I do a show like this, all guys who are sex acts already know they are. Mm-hmm. Okay. They have tried to stop. They've cried, prayed, promised. Uh, some of them had consequences. Uh, they used after those consequences of getting caught, losing their job or losing a relationship. They went back to it after promises of not to. And so they tend to spend more and more time with it over time. You know, it used to be an hour a week. Now it's an hour a day or two hours. So there's more time consuming. Uh, they tend to uh, make the rest of their social life smaller so they can accommodate the, the addiction. So those are some of the characteristics of addiction. But addiction is 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 medicating yourself in some way. Doesn't it, whether it's alcohol, drugs, sex, food, work, it doesn't matter to avoid either past pain, like sexual abuse, pain, rape, trauma, abortions, whatever, or current stresses uh, that are overwhelming for you. You don't have the emotional maturity to process your emotions. So you go to it, but there's actually six different types of sex addicts. So I'd like to go down that road a little bit because it might help some guys get the, get who they are. And I'll go through them really rapidly. Number one is the biological. Okay. This is, purely biological. This has nothing to do with attachment. This is just biological. When you have a sexual encounter, you get the highest level of endogenous opiates hits the prefrontal cortex of your brain and boom, you attach to whatever that is. Okay, if you do that thousands of times, you're going to really like whatever that is. Okay, And so you can become a sex addict just purely by that process with no emotional trauma, no sexual abuse, nothing. Just ring the bell, feed the dog, ring the bell, feed the dog, ring the bell, feed the dog. Okay, just like the person who picks up a cigarette and keeps picking up a cigarette. Then there's a psychological, that's the abandonment issues, you know, uh, the emotional, uh, physical abuse in the home or by peers, bullying, that kind of stuff. You you feel psychologically pain and you move to Medicaid. Uh, Thirdly is sexual abuse. Now, the sexual abuse sex addict is someone who actually duplicates their sexual abuse, either as the perpetrator or as the victim. So their their profile is very specific to their sexual trauma, Uh, because a lot of people who are sex addicts have been sexually abused, but they don't fit that profile. But the ones who do, it's because directly because of the trauma. And then there's people who have, uh, well, you know, spiritually, they're on a spiritual journey and sex is filling the hole. Until they find that spiritual end, that journey, they, they use this to kind of get that unconditional love and support and encouragement and nurturing. Um, and then there is the um, intimacy anorexic sex addict. Now, this takes a little explaining. Intimacy anorexia is where you actively withhold spiritually, emotionally, and sexually from your spouse or partner. OK, so literally a guy can be a sex addict and not have not have sex with his wife for weeks, months or years or decades. Now, that sounds crazy if you're a sex addict, but OK, but you've you've probably had conversations about the, the sexless marriages, the sexless woman, the sexless guy. We can have I've written several books on that the, and coined the phrase intimacy and anorexia. So real quickly, the guy's too busy for his wife, blames his wife, withholds love, withholds spiritually, withholds emotionally, withholds sex or is disconnected during sex like we talked about, unwilling to talk about his feelings Is critical of her. And she feels like a roommate. They've had that conversation again. I feel alone. We're not really clicking. You know, why are we married? That kind of stuff. Um, And then the last one is someone with a mood disorder, a legit mood disorder, chemical depression, uh, bipolar, manic depression. And they're actually using the sexual endogenous process to balance their brain. Okay. And for that person, so each one, they, they need a certain level, different kinds of treatment to some degree. But knowing which one you are uh, really helps because you know how you got there. You can now it's like, okay, now how do we get out of here? Okay, instead of just lumping all sex acts together, um, we, you know, in the early, late 80s, that's how they did it. When we came up with this model, it just made a lot more sense for people uh, as to like figuring out how, because the biggest question is, you know, Connor, how did I get here? Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, I'm really a rational guy Mm -hmm. and I want to be successful in life. So how did I end up in your office? And when I go through these types, I go, okay, let me do my assessment. And and, and it takes me about maybe eight to 12 minutes because I'm pretty good at it. And I can find out in about 12 minutes what type of sex act they are. And we have those on YouTube and and they can call our office. We have lots of counselors who can do this with them. And then once they find that out, then there's a path, a known path to treat them.
1: Yeah, it is interesting because I think a lot of guys are searching for the, why am I this way? And that can be a step in the process. It's pretty important it oftentimes is the thing that's like, well, once I figure out why I'm this way, then I won't be this way anymore. Um, no, 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 no. That just tells you the road you're going on. <laughs> that's right, that's right. Yeah, I just wanted to make sure that that was clear for everybody.
0: Yeah, it's not like, uh, you, don't, you don't understand addiction and heal. Mm-hmm. You understand addiction and start a journey. Yeah. Say, say
1: a little bit more about the intimacy anorexia because I think that's an interesting one. What would you say contributes to the, the birth of Intimacy anorexia in a man. If 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 that's somebody who's like seeking sexual attention outside, whether it's through porn or or you know affairs and whatnot, but is very disconnected within their primary relationship, mm-hmm. uh, is that just maybe say a little bit about what cause what causes that a little bit? Yeah.
0: Well, not only I mean you know you're you're having man talks, but you know there's a lot of men married to women who are intimacy anorexics. Mm-hmm who avoid sex, who are really good guys, they work hard, they provide for their family, and they go home, they're not touched, they're not wanted, they're not talked to, and they feel used, um, and they feel crazy. And some of that pain is what drives them into some of these behaviors because uh, they, have, they are in an unloving relationship. I have a book called Marrying Lone. We have books on intimacy and anorexia. But the four causes, Connor, uh, one is sexual addiction because you have preferred the object for so long that you really don't want to connect to a real person. It's too emotionally and spiritually and relationally expensive for you. So you just don't. Okay. One is sexual abuse. You've been used as an object at a deep, very core level. You haven't healed that safety mistrust issue. And so you don't really trust. And so you don't really want to come out and play. All right. Some is attachment. uh, You were talking about attachment to the cross gender parent. So if you're a man, you either couldn't attach to mom because she wasn't safe. She wasn't there. She was abusive uh, or neglectful. And so you couldn't attach mm. uh, to her. And so therefore you don't even know how to attach to a woman uh, in, in a deeper way. And, and the last is role model neglect where, either, where both parents were very emotionally distant. There's all cultures who were like that. And, and so you didn't learn anything about connecting. You learned about, you know, go to school, work hard, be successful, get a nice car and die. So you didn't really learn about relationship and intimacy. I mean, your dad didn't say, hey, son, how are you feeling?
1: You mean the, you mean the goal The goal isn't to just buy a Porsche or a Ferrari and then kick the bucket? I thought that was why we were all here.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's the American dream, you know, but, but it's unsatisfying. You know, without relationships and intimacy, you know, both with a partner in a deep way, but also with some men. You got to have some, some buddies, you know, yeah. hang out with and do stuff with do life with, laugh at each other with, laugh with each other with you know, and cry with each other, you know, when things get tough and get things get hard.
1: I agree. I agree. That is the primary function of what we do in a lot of ways with man talks. I want to just go in a little bit more in terms of the intimacy anorexia, because I think, you know, I was uh, reading some research the other day that was talking about how 30% of couples within the first two years will be in a quote unquote sexless marriage or sexless relationship. Sorry. Mm -hmm. And I I Mm -hmm. thought that that was in some ways surprisingly high, you know, that 30% of couples are going to find themselves having sex less than, you know, four to six times per year. And that tells me that there's an intimacy issue in a lot of ways that people are struggling to maintain connection. And I, I think what's interesting is our modern times, it's, you know, there's sort of the choice paradox. You can go online on any social media platform and, and your imagination can run wild about, you know, maybe being in relationship with her or him would be easier and they treat me better and then give me what I want. And, you know, or you can go onto mm. dating apps and, you know, sort of see this slew of people and fantasize about how good your life would be with them. Or you can go onto, you know, porn sites and, uh, or you can go onto OnlyFans, mm. right. And you can go and rent a girlfriend, right. And have everything, you know, that you've imagined sort of come up. And so it, it really seems like this, I like this concept of intimacy anorexia because it actually seems to me from the outside, like what a lot of people are struggling with is building the foundation mm-hmm. of healthy intimacy. And so I'm curious to get your perspective on two, two pieces. One, what would you say is contributing to this intimacy anorexia, both socially and then within our family systems? And two, what are some of the primary things that we actually require within a relationship to develop that deeper kind of intimacy? And I know that that might be dependent on some of the things that you're struggling with, but I want to just explore these two paths.
0: Well, I think, you know, we we have a multi-addicted culture. So we have a lot of children raising children, okay? Because if you have an addiction, you don't mature past the point when the addiction starts in your life. And most addiction starts in early adolescence. So if you stay in an attic during the time you're raising your children, you're, it's a child raising mm-hmm. a child. So a child doesn't get to see what adulthood looks like. And they go and repeat that. So that's that's one, you know, talk about a film familiar cultural problem. That's it. Another problem is easy access and the, and the growth of technology. Prior to my generation, I mean, the, they had like black and white TV, right? You know, and they might watch I Love Lucy where everyone was married and they slept, you know, separate beds. And now everyone's sleeping in the same bed with different people. And so the, the culture has moved from kind of a, a standard of, you know, relationships take commitment and work and, and do that kind of thing to like, well, just do whatever you want to do. If it feels good, do it. We went through the 60s, you know, love the one you're with, right? And so we moved really away from traditional understanding of relationships in general, that they take time, they take commitment, they take hard work. So we were more into, hey, let's just go on Facebook, right? And so when you go to a restaurant, Connor. Just look at how many people are on their cell phones versus how many people mm-hmm. are talking to each other. I like to leave mine in my pocket or in the car because we're not talking to each other. We're talking to things that are out there in the other world. OK, and so we're getting more dependent on this other Internet world, of, of whether it's news, stocks or, you know, Facebooks or fans only, whatever it is, we're, we're getting more familiar and attached to technology. I really feel sad for our next generation of kids. Who they grow up with it from almost babies. You see moms handing in their kids' cell phones at two years old to pacify them instead of relating to them and emotionally and, and calm. So this one of the other questions you ask is what skills do we need to have? I wrote a book called Emotional Fitness. Now, I have four degrees. Okay, not bragging. I'm just saying that in all four degrees, they didn't teach me how to be emotionally fit. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a psychologist, right? And so they talked about feelings, but they didn't teach you how to do it. And in the emotional fitness book, I talk, teach men and women in 60 days, they can become emotionally incredible. So we need to have the emotional skill to be able to identify what we feel. Because if we can't identify what we feel, we can't communicate what we feel. If we can't communicate it, we can't be heard. If we can't be heard, we don't feel intimate. Mm. Does that make sense? Absolutely, Yep. You know, a lot of people go into counseling, that's one of the basic skills they learn is what are you feeling? Share your feelings. Let's do that in group. You know, you learn. So when you do that in group, you connect to that group. You feel authentic. You've had hundreds of those kind of encounters with men, right? Where a guy just breaks down so starts sharing his heart, right? And then so all of a sudden, the whole group likes the guy, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> so, because that, that kind of emotional skill to be able to share your heart brings intimacy into your life, okay? And so without that skill, and most men have, not, I've got four degrees. I was not trained, okay? All right? So I had to train myself and the emotional fitness book walks you through how to do that because feelings are not in your brain. They're in your fascia system. Hmm. (laughs) And and so you have to actually feel the feeling to be able to switch the feeling. You can't switch a feeling in your head. Okay. Because thoughts are not stronger than feelings. Talk to any angry person. It'll make sense, right? (laughs) (laughs) And so you actually have to learn how to do that. And so I think there's uh, some cultural things that are, are keeping us from intimacy. Um, I think there's a lot of role model um, things that we've learned over many generations that are not help, helpful. And um, I'm excited that, you know, like conversations like this with you, that men can take that journey. And it is a journey and it's, it's skill. Just like if you, if you and I want to learn how to be good at golf, which why would you want to do that? But if you do, you have to spend a lot of time to do that to get good at it. And then emotions, you can, if you spend 20 minutes a day for two months, you can become incredibly good at it. And we have an exercise in several of my books called the three dailies, which you share two feelings with your spouse every day.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, and I've done that for decades. Okay. And so you, when you share your feelings, you you're connecting to your spouse and you're getting better at identifying and communicating your feelings. That's a skill you can have, but if not, you will do men tend to do what we're good at. And if you're not good at something, you don't do it. Well, you don't get good unless you practice. But if you don't practice, you stay not good. And then so your wife is not hearing your heart. You're not hearing her heart. And listen, if you want your woman to talk to you and you want her to open up sexually, you got to learn how to do feelings. Now, I've been talking about this for 30 plus years, Connors, in all kinds of settings, okay? And the guys who do what I ask, when I tell them to do, they have better sex. I have a whole book called Upgrade Your Sex Life. I've written like 35 books. Uh, Upgrade Your Sex Life, which teaches guys how, to, how they're made sexually, the five different sexual expressions and how their wife is made, and how they can capitalize on that. Because your wife wants to hear something different than you want to hear. Mm. Okay? She wants to be asked differently than you want to be asked. Once you know what that is, you can capitalize on that and have better and more sex. But as, as a man, if you're not sharing emotionally and you're not connecting with her emotionally, you're actually going to dry her up sexually. She's not going to want to open up her legs because you're, you're, not, you're not opening up her heart. Mm-hmm and emotions is how you get to a woman's heart. How do you feel about that? What else do you feel about that? And, you know, and men don't have that skill. Okay. (laughs) Because in the men's social society, we don't do that. Hey, buddy, how you feeling, man? Like, how you doing is what you do. How you doing? Right. I'm doing fine. Right. So, but in the female culture, you know, you have to learn how to identify their feelings and say, Hey, well, how'd how'd you feel when that happened with your mom or your sister or your friend? And, what else do you feel? I mean, how do you feel when the kids didn't, you know, call you on Mother's Day? Let's talk about it, right? Mm-hmm. And get into that. And then that turns her on, especially if you share your feelings. Yeah, it's, in, it's interesting. I heard um,
1: on a different show, there's a podcast out of the UK called, I think it's called Diary of a CEO. And uh, the gentleman had on this woman who is a sex expert and has written a ton of books around sex and, and intimacy and, and, you know, having great sex within your relationship. And she said something that I found really interesting. She said, women are the ones to get bored sexually in the relationship, not men. And oftentimes, I think what, what we do as guys is we fall into these patterns, habits, and routines. And that, that's yeah. comfortable for us. And we're totally fine with it, right? And I hear guys talk about this all the time. It's like, yeah, like if we just had sex two or three times a week, but it was, it was the same thing, you know, it was the same position. Like, I'd be fine with that because we'd be having sex. And when you see, I would imagine, and I'm curious to sort of poke this into your, into your background around uh, mm-hmm. masturbation and, and porn habits, I would uh, wager a guess that a good amount of men have very habituated, routined um, mm-hmm. masturbation and porn viewing processes. Is that
0: accurate? Oh yeah, absolutely. And that influences how well they can show up emotionally in the relationship and how well they can show up sexually in the bedroom. Mm-hmm. And if a woman doesn't feel she has your heart during sex, She's having negative reinforcement, not positive reinforcement. Okay? And so if you keep negatively reinforcing your wife that you're not going to be present during sex, that she's going to have an empty, alone experience, she doesn't want to have an alone experience. Mm. Okay? So you're actually conditioning her not to want you, as opposed to if you're all in, connected, looking. I'll I'll give you the three tips, because you seem like a nice guy, Connor. I'll give you the three tips to great sex. Okay? Eyes open. Lights on. And nurturing conversation, look her in the eyes, talk to her, behold her. You do that. You connect to her during sex. And I've I've shared this with hundreds of thousands of people. I've never gotten an email that said it doesn't work. Now, I have gotten emails. It took me a while to do it, okay? (laughs) But as they they move through that, then the wife is having the better sex. Because for her, it's about connecting to your heart. Now, if she's having a better positive reinforcement schedule, then she's going to be more motivated to have that positive reinforcement because that's when you're really with me. That's when you connect to me. That's when you open your heart to me. Well, I want to be with you. Right? And so guys, I mean, the women are not as complicated as we tend mm-hmm. to be, but they do need positive reinforcement sexually. And what this person on the podcast was alluding to only applies to one of the sexual expressions, okay? Because one of the sexual expressions is fun, okay? They want to, they want to, have, they want to have sex and fun, but another sexual expression is uh, patience. That person wants quality time with sex. They want the long stroking. They want the, you know, the 30, 40 minute warm up before having a sexual encounter, whether they're a man or a woman. OK, so it depends on what their sexual expression is as to why they would get bored quickly. But oftentimes what I find is there's a mismatch. It, it, so he thinks she wants sex the way he does and she thinks he should have sex the way she wants it. Instead of learning, hey, he he wants to hear this during sex. He wants to hear, I want you, not I love you. Because guys know their wives love them because they put up with them, okay? But what they don't know is if they're they're wanted. Now, if your sexual expression is desire and you're not hearing that you're wanted, you're going to search to be wanted. Whether it's flirting, I have a whole video on intrigue addiction, intriguing with women. You're going to find yourself acting in some way to get wanted because you're not being wanted. You're not... You're not being ravaged and, you know, attacked and, you know, Hey, let's do it in the car. Like you're not getting that. Okay. And so that mismatch, because maybe he's desire, he wants to be wanted, but over here she is, um, she's patience. And she's like, Hey, I want to make sure the doors are locked. The kids are in sleep. And I want you to caress me with oil. And I want you to tell me, you know, how much you enjoy me. Or if she's like celebration, she wants you to be able to really celebrate who she is, not just as a sex partner, but as a woman. Right. And so knowing what she wants is, I cover the whole sexual arc in that book where we talk about the sexual environment you create for your partner. Okay. That's how you talk about sex, you know, throughout the day or throughout the week, whatever that kind of environment is to play for or not. And then how you invite your spouse. Cause if you have a patient, let's suppose you have a patient wife, which a lot of women are patients. You would say, baby, I really want to spend some time with you tonight. I want to, I want to give you a bath. I want to rub your feet. I want to play with you and then i want to make love to you well see now that's an invitation she wants because it, it invokes her own sexual expression you am know, saying i feel like hey let's go have sex she is so turned off because it doesn't have anything to do with her or quality time mm-hmm. and for a man if he is desire and she, she's saying to him something like hey you know it'd be really neat if you'd give me a 30 minute massage and um <laughs> he's like do you want me? Is it about me? Like, do you want me at all? He's not feeling it. You see what I'm saying? So a lot of couples, mm-hmm. they don't understand the sexual expression of the other person. And so because of that, they presume the other person's like them. I don't think I've ever seen a couple in counseling where they were the same. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it takes about it takes less than probably a half hour to figure it out. They just read the first five chapters of the book and they go, oh, my gosh, I'm yeah. this. Oh, my gosh, I'm this. And then the rest of the book tells them what to say and do and mm-hmm. how to work it out right? And so once you know, oh, I'm desire. Okay, wait. So if she just, if she just says, hey, baby, I want you, he is lit. And if she says that during sex, oh my gosh, he's going to have the most incredible orgasm because it's hitting his heart exactly the way he's designed. Okay. It's not, it's not trying to guess at how he's designed. It's like, no, this is how he is designed. Okay. And you say that during sex, you will blow his mind. Okay. And the same thing for the wife. Like depending on what she is, if she's celebration, you say you are the kindest soul. I love being with you. I love making love to you. And oh my gosh, you're talking about who she is during sex.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting because I think in, I'm glad that you brought in both parties. Cause I think sometimes what can happen in these conversations, like, you know, I see, I read a lot of comments online. You know, I do a lot of research on other people's shows that are specifically for men. And one of the things that, I've started to see more and more is this notion that the man's fully responsible for sex and that the guy's got to figure out what the woman wants. And there's, there's some, not a lot, but there are some channels, uh, a lot of content out there that sort of advocates for that. Mm -hmm. I think that there's some guys that want to make sure it's like, yeah, I have my part
0: in this but she does too, you know, and some. Yeah. Especially like suppose she's an intimacy anorexic woman. She doesn't even want sex. Right. Okay. So it wouldn't even matter what he did. She would sabotage him. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And now that's painful. Okay. Cause usually if you're married to the intimacy anorexic, you're the one reading the marriage books. You're the one reading the sex books. You're the one trying to figure it out, but you don't realize you're in a rigged game. Then no matter what you try, it's not going to work because they don't really want intimacy at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, that poor guy, he's listening to all the podcasts and he's getting screwed because when he tries this stuff, he doesn't get the results because she doesn't want the results. So your, your intuition is right. Sexuality is definitely a mutual understanding and a mutual learning and a mutual growing. OK, but if you don't know what the other person's sexual expression is, you are handicapped. I mean, I can tell you, I've had couples get mind blowing sex in the first day after trying this stuff. And I'd have them ask sex just in general. And and just, this is really funny, Connor. by the way. Most couples don't even know how to use their words to ask for sex. I have a whole chapter on that, right? And so they don't even say, I want to make love to you. I want to be sexual with you. I want to take you upstairs and take your clothes off and enjoy you, right? They don't even know how to get that out of their mouth. They kind of do the groping, the stroking the hair, the touching the back, the hugging tightly to see if they're going to say yes, right? So there's this whole caveman kind of approach to even asking about sexuality, which is hysterical. but. If the couple is on a journey to find out what the other person really wants to hear and connect it, then that that journey is going to take them to a place that they can really have the most incredible sex and in the way that we're really designed. Because usually not always, but these couples are set up in such a way that it's going to cost him something to meet her need. And it's going to cost her something to meet his. Okay. Cause if she's patience, she really wants time. Right. And if he's fun and he wants to have it in the tent in the backyard and he wants to go, he wants to try different things. Right. And so you can see how those two are not going to necessarily be on the same page, but they have to learn to collaborate and say, Hey, this time let's do the fun thing. Let me have my kind of flavor. And next time let's do the patient thing. Let's have your flavor. Mm-hmm. And you can, you can go back and forth and really connect with each other in a deep, passionate way with understanding and intelligence instead of like, Oh, the same sex, the same thing, you know? Okay. You done? I hope that was good for you. Right. That's not fun, and eventually that can create pain and neglect. And if it moves to neglect, then you move. In, it can move into the intimacy anorexia stuff, and it gets really painful. We actually did research on a book called Partner Betrayal Trauma. You'll find this fascinating. One hundred forty-four women did this survey of pre, pre and post. Okay, we we surveyed them over like nine or twelve scales. Three groups of women: those who've experienced infidelity, those who've experienced sexual addiction from their spouse, and those who've experienced intimacy anorexia. And you would think from a scientific standpoint, those three populations would be all over the map statistically. Hmm. in every scale they were within one or two percent of each other. So the trauma of infidelity and the trauma of neglect are exactly experienced the same way by a woman. And I would tell you, as a man who I've worked with many men in this situation, they experience the same way. The guy who has to beg for sex, beg to be connected, beg to be heard is in just as much pain as a man who the wife cheats on him. Yeah, I
1: would agree with that entirely.
0: Yeah, it's it's a whole it's a whole topic all by itself.
1: No, it's it's really it's really fascinating. I, I just wanted to re- I wanted to return to this notion of intimacy anorexia when one partner is is in that position because I could hear the listeners like, oh, that's my partner. Oh shit, that's me. Oh you know, yeah. Oh, what yeah, do I do? <laughs> what are some of the foundational pieces of moving out of that space? Because I think that there's a lot of couples that are in that where one person is in that refusal of intimacy or the rejection of it consciously or unconsciously?
0: Well, they can get informed. They, if they Google intimacy anorexia, they're going to find our website, find the YouTube stuff. That's great. But get informed a little bit before you go in there, okay? There's actually one on, you know, my, my spouse thinks I'm an intimacy anorexic, right? So it's me talking to the spouse that, you know, hey, your spouse thinks this, right? But get informed, you know, and you might even need to get support yourself because uh, they're, they may not be happy because you're talking to a drunk. And drunks don't always want to give up their beer. And if you've been married for 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years, they've gotten away with it. Mm-hmm. And now you're saying, no, there's a boundary. You're not drinking anymore. You're not going to withhold love from me. You're not going to withhold sex from me. You're not going to not touch me for weeks at a time. You're not going to pull the silent treatment on me anymore. I'm going to have boundaries. And what happens is as you get understanding of what the, the game you're in, your worth increases and your intelligence increases. Now you can start fighting this battle. So then get the intimacy, anorexia book, uh, and then get the married and alone books so you know how to start battling your side and healing your side of being married and alone. Because if you feel married and alone, you're probably married to an intimacy anorexic, okay? If you've had that, we're just roommates, I feel alone. You know, they're cold towards you in bed. They, they turn their back towards you on a regular basis. Are they sleeping in another room? Are there's always a headache? They're always tired. And this, sex is great for headaches, and, and sex is great if you're tired, right? So that's really an excuse. But if you feel like you're always being pushed away you're probably married to an intimacy anorexic and that is a whole system of addiction mm. okay it's addiction to withholding from you like in the food anorexia you withhold food from yourself In intimacy anorexia i withhold food from you and you starve okay <laughs> <laughs> well i'm not in pain because i'm starving you yeah, I think that's that's
1: interesting because I think in, in some ways, you know, like you're saying, you can't force the other person out of that position. Mm-hmm. And it's like, uh, you know, with avoidant attachment styles, you hear a lot of, oh, my, my yeah. partner is avoidant attachment. Like, what do I do? And it's like, well, they have to choose to lean in, you know, yeah. they, like they actually have to choose to to be the person that moves towards you. And so it sounds like that's a very similar yeah. piece of this puzzle.
0: It, it's similar in, in, in dynamic, but what's interesting about intimacy in Mexico is it's only in the marriage or the primary relationship. Uh-huh. Yeah. Everyone else gets the best mm. of them. They can have good male relationships with third guy, they can have good girlfriends with third girl, they can have good relationships with their kids. But when it comes to you, you are the one who mm-hmm. is alone. That's the difference between anorexia and say like schizoid personality disorder, attachment disorder, and those things. Because like, if you're a schizoid, you're schizoid with everybody. Okay, leave me alone. I'm going to go to the lake, right? I'm going to, I'm going to go to the, you know, I'm going, to, I'm going to go camping, right? By myself. When it's a personality disorder or attachment stuff, it's, it's mm. global. And that's why the person feels crazier. Because like, hey, you're good with your friends, you're good with your family, but you're not good with me. You come home, you read your book, you're on the computer, you're on your phone. I don't know who you are, right? But everyone else does. Yeah, That's the difference between intimacy and anorexia as a relationship disorder, like kind of relational disorder versus a psychological disorder where it's with everybody.
1: Yeah, I think it's also interesting because in a lot of those other relationships, there likely often isn't the same opportunity for depth as there is within the intimate relationship. You know, I think that part of the uniqueness of an intimate relationship is the depth of belonging, the depth of understanding, the depth of being seen, the depth of having your, your needs met. And so I think for a lot of people, that is just brutally confronting, especially I, what, what I found interesting in working with individuals. My wife's also a, a couples therapist, and, and mm-hmm. so we work with couples a lot. And so what I found interesting in some of these dynamics is it can be amplified when the individual knows that they're with a partner who is open and wants to meet their needs. Like that can be, Mm -mm. that can be the most confronting thing. Just the knowledge of like, oh, actually you do care about me and you do want to meet my needs. And, you know, you do want to feel close to me. And that can be so foreign. It can, it can create all this sort of polarization within the individual who is, you know, in your terminology, the intimacy anorexic. And so that, Mm. that can sort of pressurize the system in itself.
0: You have a really good intuition, Connor. This can often happen on the wedding night. Mm. They date normally, we're having fun, we're having sex, we're playing around, all this all good, and on the wedding night, they won't have sex, okay? And it starts a whole trajectory of rejection. And it's like something about this covenant, this there's no escape from me thing, mm. you're right, can bring fear to the other person, that they're going to be known, because they have an idea, like, if you really knew me, you wouldn't love me,
1: uh-huh.
0: right? They live in an object relationship with self, there's a good box and bad box, and they can't be bad, so you have to be bad all the time, <laughs> which sucks if you're married to them. Right. Okay. And so, um, but your intuition's right. It's something about that marriage that I do think that can actually activate this thing. Uh, And I've heard, I actually have a a whole YouTube one and not having sex on your wedding night, Hmm. just because I've heard so many clients tell me it happened on the night of the wedding.
1: Interesting. Interesting. Well, let's, let's come back to sex and porn addiction and get into a little bit of the quote unquote solution side of things. Cause I can hear some of my listeners being like, hold on, <laughs> do not end this show yeah. without going down the rabbit yeah, hole let's do it. Of, let's do it. of like how we deal with some of these things. So do you look at treating sex addiction differently than porn addiction? Cause I think in, for a lot of guys, they're two different camps.
0: Yeah. Not really the process of addiction it depends what type they are. So if they're biological, you're still going to go to support groups. You're going to still do the 101 exercise workbook. You're still going to do your 12 steps. You're still going to make calls every day. You're going to pray every day to whatever you want to. Um, you're going to read literature. We can call them the five C's, pray, read, call, meetings, pray, kind of like Alcoholics Anonymous. You're going to do that no matter what type of sex addict you are. Okay. That's your basic program there. Now, on the biological, and a lot of the guys, they struggle with, you know, checking out people all the time. So they might put a rubber band on the wrist every time they do that to biologically condition themselves from getting that stimulus response thing going. It takes about 30 days. It shuts that kind of always checking everybody out thing, like, you know, like I'm a fruit inspector or something, right? Oh, wow, that's a nice apple. That's a nice pear. Hmm, that pear is a little, you know, we don't need to do that. Um, if you have psychological stuff, the mom and dad stuff, the wounds, the abandonments, you're probably going to want to do some counseling around that, or at least do some reading or support around, uh, the wounds of that. Because if you don't identify those wounds, you're going to keep medicating them and you'll just go from porn addiction to food. Okay. So you'll be a fat, clean guy. All right. So you don't want to do that. If we, if we go down into the, um, the spiritual, well, that takes care of itself because if, if you go into a 12-step group, you're going to eventually find a higher power. You're going to figure that piece out, okay? And so don't really like to do much about that. The, the sexual abuse piece, often you do need um, some work on that. You know, we have them do anger work, you know, some empty chair stuff, like the Gestalt stuff you're talking about, the forgiveness and all that kind of stuff. If they've experienced rape, if they've experienced abortions, whatever, because men have pain about abortions mm-hmm. too. That's a whole nother show, right? So, you know, if they have their own traumas that they, that they've done that are sexually related, then they need to deal with that trauma. And that usually does take some support and counseling. And again, everyone's in a support group. We have like 50 phone groups. Okay. So we, we deal with sex addicts all day long. If they call Heart Heart Counseling Center at 719-278-3708, they're going to get help. We have, you know, lots of stuff there. There's an app, there's all kinds of stuff. Now the intimacy anorexic, that person almost always needs counseling because they don't always want to get better. <laughs> and so it really takes some support to kind of push them through that and accountability. And so we have intimacy andorexia support groups for them. They do the workbooks, they make the calls, they do that. And they work on their sex addiction at the same time because in- intimacy and and sex addiction are interconnected addiction processes. If you don't work on both at the same time, they both come back. Mm-hmm. Now the mood disorder person, they do really well to see a psychiatrist, not, not a GP, but a psychiatrist, um, because they really want to find out. Uh, they can, they can you know, find out what their chemical imbalance is and treat that alongside of doing the sex addiction treatment. Because uh, I found early in my career that if they don't treat the chemical imbalance. They keep relapsing because that's what they've been doing to balance their brain. Mm-hmm. And once they do balance their brain, oftentimes they get a lot of sobriety really quickly. So everyone has a little bit of different thing they need to do depending on who they are. But uh, all, all the counselors on my team can help people figure it out and, and do that. Get them in support groups. You know, you have things probably people can do as well. And so, you know, this is it's important to heal because you're not the man you could be with any addiction mm-hmm. process. If you're an alcoholic, you're not the man you could be at home, at work. And like I told you early in the show, like your income can double in 12 months. If it's affecting you financially at that level, it's affecting you sexually, it's affecting you spiritually, it's affecting you uh, emotionally, it's affecting you socially, it's affecting all of your manhood, okay? Because you're robbing it of developing. And so when you have an addiction, you move it out of your life, you become more authentic. You become, I like, you know, read a little bit of your story and your journey of of moving from kind of an authentic place to an authentic place, right? But once you deal with addictions, you can naturally gravitate into that process.
1: Yeah, and I think, I think what's, maybe not important, I mean, it is important, but also interesting just about what you're talking about is this notion of support, I think is a huge part of it. You know, having a a community that's in there. But also I was really curious as you were talking about the, the sort of like the mood disorder aspect of it, where do you see, because this has become so front and center, especially for a lot of men, where do you see something like ADHD fitting into this equation? Cause I hear a lot of guys that are
0: that's sort of like, that's all wrapped up in that. And I'm curious to get your thoughts. It's not a cause and effect for sure. Uh-huh. There's lots of guys with, with ADHD that are not sex addicts or alcoholics. Okay. Or drug addicts. Okay. So it's not like, if I have this, it's this. Now, if you have that, you want to address that because Because recovery does take some concentration. You do have to stay on task. You have to make phone calls. There are certain things you need to do to get better, but it's not a limitation. I've seen a lot of guys with ADHD get better, okay? Especially if they make recovery their focus, because then they will shut down the, they will buy a porn blocker. You know, they will shut down their devices that are are not helpful to them. They will shut down the avenues in which the addiction is coming into life because their ADHD, they can really, they can tunnel into that thing and really get aggressive. Um, so it's not it's not a reason to relapse it's not a reason not to get better it's a variable just like if you had mild depression might be a variable or if you were overweight or if you were a smoker you you know those are variables because you're continuing to be an addict in some way which might hinder your recovery Mm -hmm. but it's not a limitation and it's not a cause and effect i've done psychological testing on probably close to a thousand men and it's not a factor in their recovery yeah
1: good i just just wanted to clear that up i agree wholeheartedly with you and i And I know that there are some men who that question sort of lingers in the background. It's like, well, maybe my ADHD is a thing that's stopping me from
0: getting clean, you know, or getting sober. No, 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 no. It's not not stopping you at all. It could help you if you use it right. But, but any excuse will do. That's right. right? (laughs) That's
1: right. That's fair. Yeah. So um, I just want to, I want to clarify on the biological side because when it comes to addiction, uh, you know, sometimes there's the epigenetics of like, you know, biologically, you have a higher predisposition mm-hmm. if you have somebody in your family that has addiction. When you're talking about biological addiction in this framework, you're talking about this sort of Pavlovian response that you've trained yourself over, yeah. and, over and over and over
0: and over again. Is that accurate? It's self-induced, but here's the good news. We are, as beings, we are in completely neuroplastic, spiritually, emotionally, sexually, financially, socially. Okay, so even if you have this this um, 10,000 hits to the object world and you start having relational sex with your spouse or your partner, eyes open, lights on your country, you start learning how to do relational sex. Then neurologically, your brain will move into that attachment schedule. Mm -hmm. And I've been clean for over 37 years. Okay, and you can learn to have the powerful relational sex and then your brain will actually prefer that. So it works both ways, mm-hmm. okay? You know, just like if you're 50 years old and you never looked at pornography and you go start looking at pornography, you can train your brain to go left sexually. And all of a sudden you find yourself attracted to all kinds of weird things, right? Where you never did before because you didn't have the reinforcement schedule. In the same way, it goes the other way.
1: Yeah, I think that's, that's such an important piece of it. Can you maybe just speak a little bit, something that we haven't touched on that? I see within a lot of men is like almost like a validation addiction a love addiction you know this sort of pursuit of getting women to to really validate you know and that can that can be it's not even like pornographic it's it's not even sexual it's just like I want you to love me and tell me I'm enough and good
0: enough I want you to want me yes right we call it intrigue addiction uh huh it's under the radar it's not about lust it's not about her you know her top or her bottom because they don 't match okay it's about the eye contact, the intriguing, do you like me? do you think I'm hot I, do you think I'm sexy right, and it's going on with the eye contact thing, and it drives women crazy because the guys aren't technically doing anything wrong, but they can feel the energy, they can feel it release, they can feel it going back and forth, and it's an intrigue addiction, and so what they're doing is they're you know they're they're more like the you know the beer drinking alcoholic as opposed to the whiskey drinking alcoholic, right, but they have they have their own kind of like map of where they get their hits. They go to the health food store, they go to the gym, they go to the coffee shop. They know, well, she's going to be there at three o'clock on Tuesday. I need to get back there at three o'clock on Tuesday. And they actually map this stuff. And so they are, we we call it intrigue addiction. And we have a video on that. And it's really, once they watch it, they go, oh my gosh, I do that all the time. Then they can start healing from that and having accountability for that moving through the same process. But it is intrigue addiction. And it is the Hey, you know, the eye contact, the looking at things, making sure you're at the gym when she's at the gym, that kind of thing. So that you, you start organizing your life to get these intrigue hits. And once you find someone who wants to play, you'll play with them up to a certain point. And that can actually lead to an affair in some cases. And you can do it online too, where you banter back and forth, or you have a text buddy who you're just kind of special friends with, but you know, we're not doing anything wrong because they live in California, right? Hey, how's it going? You're really special, you know? that kind of thing. But the intriguing thing, that's the waitress, that's the barista, that's the the bartender, that's the, you know, we're just, we're doing it, but we're not telling anybody we're doing it. Mm -hmm. And we're not getting caught because there's no words being really expressed. And when they are, it's in code. Well, and how how much of that would you say is driven by
1: that individual's insecurity within themselves or lacking of a deeper quality of self-worth? Because I'm just curious to get your sense
0: on that it's, it's well sometimes it's attached to like they didn't get validation from Mom mm-hmm. they didn't get you're awesome you're great i love you you're you're you're, you're my buddy they didn't get physical affection from mom Mom might have been of a of a culture where they didn't touch um and their love language was touched and they didn't get touched, and so they're looking for that so some some of it's very uh very family of origin stuff, some of it is kind of like. Maybe looking for someone to do what you should be doing for yourself. Like I'm not successful in life. I'm kind of a loser. So like, I like people to give me a little bit of attention because I'm really not living up to my potential because I know I could do better, but I'm just like too lazy to do it. So, you know, I have low self-esteem because what I'm capable of doing and what I'm actually doing is so divergent. So I'm looking for these little hits to get through my day. Right just like any addiction would, you know, drink the beer so that you don't feel bad about yourself. So I think your intuition, again, is right. I mean, it has, it, it has something to do with that, but they, but they do, they have a harem. I call them the emotional harem and they kind of change them. And, you know, uh, as they go, go through that, they, you know, the girl, the girl left the coffee shop. I'll find the girl at Kroger's or grocery store. Right. And so now it's this, you know, 20 year old girl who's not interested in you at all, but she smiles.
1: Right. <laughs> and there you go. Yeah. It's interesting. I I find that there's two things that sort of come up around this. I find that a lot of those men oftentimes are lacking an internal system of deeper self-gratification, self-appreciation, like a real, a real sense of internal affirmation within themselves. And so it becomes this, this, I need it from outside of me. The second piece that I'm curious yeah. about is where in all of what we've been talking about, where does the sort of like the dark triad traits fit into this? Because there are also individuals who, you know, they're, they're cheating. They're having this, you know, mm-hmm. intrigue, addiction, et cetera, as almost purely like a power play. So I'm, I'm curious to get your thoughts mm-hmm. on like, where did, do, where does that fit into the equation and have you come across mm-hmm. that at all? Or is it mostly the other, the other
0: pieces? Well, addictions uh, can escalate. So they can become addicted to, you know, first it's pornography, then it becomes affairs, then it becomes prostitutes because they want stuff that's dirty or crazy or out of control or they want to be tied up or whatever, right? So they kind of move down the continuum because addictions are never satisfied. Mm -hmm. All right. Some guys can take the same level of porn for their whole life, but some escalate. Okay. So some of that darkness comes in as the escalation of the addiction grows. Okay. The escalation also comes because of reinforcement. They start off with just the playboy, you know, little stuff, and then it moves into this or group sex or that stuff or whatever. And they start moving down the continuum neurologically, and then they start seeking out that behavior. So they're not aware of the darkness because they've practiced the darkness in their mind through pornography and fantasy. So for them, it doesn't feel dark or unfamiliar to their brain. So they're able to go through even moral code stuff and do it. All right. Um, Some of it is based, I have a book called um, Addicted to Adultery. Where you know the person who is in that process is actually you know grooming people for that, and then for them, sometimes it's the whole grooming process that 's addictive. Mm-hmm. you know it 's like, "Hey, getting them to want me," and then they have sex with them, and then they throw them away because right? it wasn't about having the sex, it was about keeping them on the line long enough to make them want mm-hmm. me, and now they want me ah, I'm good, right so everyone's playing a different game when it comes to adultery, all right? so it's, you'd have to kind of figure out what the game they 're playing, but the the darkness comes in. Uh, really as you as you start shrinking because of the addiction process, you start you stop growing spiritually, emotionally, socially, just like we said, addictions rob you of development, and so if you stop developing at fourteen, you're still kind of looking at the world at fourteen, which is there are you know there are no absolutes it's 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 up to me to decide what's right and wrong, and so I decided that hey, having sex with other women is is fine because you know i want a, I want a woman with this color as opposed to the color I got, right, so there you go.
1: Yeah, it's, I, you know, I think one of the reasons why I bring it in is like online, I see
0: a lot of content around narcissists, psychopaths, you know. It's okay, I have a whole DVD called Sex Addiction, Intimacy, Anorexia, and Narcissism. Huh. And so I've actually done MMPIs on over about a thousand mm-hmm. men who are sex addicts or intimacy and or both, okay? And the results of that study, because I had, I had a, a counselor intern, so I would go through all of my, all of my tests you know, for seven years, go through them all, put them all together. I want to know what disorders show up. I didn't give them any parameters, just what shows up. Okay. Narcissism almost never shows up. Mm -hmm. Now here's why, because in the DSM, and you can ask your wife about this. Okay. In the DSM, you look up narcissism, read it. There's two sentences in there that say, if someone has an addiction, do not give them this diagnosis because when you have an addiction, you, you stop developing, right? So if you stop developing at 14, you're an adolescent. Adolescents are narcissists, okay? <laughs> now, before I go any further, I want to validate if you're, if you're a man or a woman, you're living with an addict who feels like a narcissist, you're feeling the right pain. You're just giving the wrong diagnosis, mm-hmm. okay? Feeling the self-centeredness, the grandiosity, the lack of empathy, because empathy is a mature emotion, which if you're immature, you can't have. The reason you're experiencing is because of their immaturity, not because of narcissism. Mm. So when they Google narcissism, they go, that's my husband. You're you're right. Your pain about that is legit. And what you're seeing on the screen does characterize him. He's just not a narcissist. He's an addict who is immature. Who if, and now see, I've worked with about 5,000 men and couples. I've seen these guys who have all those characteristics, okay, in the beginning and within months, they start disappearing. By the end of the year, they're not there at all. Yeah. So if you're a true narcissist, you have to work really hard if you're a narcissist to get better. But if you're an addict who, has, who is immature, you naturally mature if you're doing group, you're dealing with other men, you're being accountable, you're learning how to socialize, you're being able to process your feelings. And all that self-centeredness, the lack of empathy, all disappears. Okay? So I'm talking from a scientific perspective, not of like, well, this is my opinion. Right. Okay? And so a lot of sex addicts and anorexics are not narcissists. Um, they are immature. And the wife is experiencing them as a narcissist. They are. They're just not. It's kind of like you be depressed, but it might be you got low testosterone. Yeah. Or you have a low thyroid. I tell my clients all the time, if they, if they hit the depression thing, go get your thyroid check first, get your, get your hormones check second, and then talk to a doctor. Because the symptoms are exactly the same. So the symptoms of narcissism, let's say, are similar to the symptoms of, and an immature addict. And so the symptom cluster is the same. Now, the reason they're that way is different and the way they get better is yeah. different. No, hundred percent. And
1: the reason why I brought it up is that distinction is important. And, you know, the, mm. I think what's dangerous, I, I did a, a podcast episode about the weaponization of modern psychology in our culture and, and just sort of, you know, broke down how these terms that are, cl- you know, clinical diagnoses that are that are, you know, clinical narcissists are fairly few and far between, you know, like traditional NPDs. And so I love the distinction that you said because I think that that's arguably one of the most important pieces. I, I really want to take that clip out and, and put that out into the world because I think that a lot of addicts, you know, the, the experience that people have around them. Uh, it can be very easy mm-hmm. for those individuals to say, oh, they're a narcissist. And it's like, well, no, <laughs> that's, oh. not, that's not actually it. Oh. But it's easy to say that. And so I, I really love
0: and appreciate that distinction on your side. If you believe they're a narcissist, get them tested. Yeah. So you don't give them a diagnosis, have a psychologist give them a diagnosis. And most women are willing to have their husbands take a psychological test. And the way we do it at Hartart Heart Counseling Center is we have them both take the test because sometimes her issues are pissing off his mm-hmm. issues. Okay, or vice versa. What happens is I can't tell you how many hundreds of women have come in, you know, Dr. Weiss, my husband's a sociopath, he's a narcissist. I go, you can't do that till Thursday, because Thursday we get the test results back. And if it shows up legit, we'll agree. But if it doesn't, you can't do that yeah. anymore. And like in ninety-five percent of the cases, they can't do it anymore. Yeah. And the same with the guys. My wife's borderline. Probably yeah man. That's you know, she's trying to she's trying to have boundaries right. with you. Okay. <laughs>
1: Well, it's such an anomaly, I think, within our modern culture is that this, you know, this knowledge and wisdom that's now readily available mm. online, yeah. you know, for the average person within their, within their household, it's, it's another form of objectification because there, there's these labels that are just getting thrown around within the relationship. And it's like, well, that doesn't help. You know, it creates more, more separation, so.
0: You're really, you're intuition. You're really good intuition, Connor. You should do this professionally. <laughs> I'll look into it. Your intuition's really I'll sharp. look into it. People are being objectified and putting in boxes in which when you put someone in a box, you can't relate to them anymore. Yes. You know, and then you stay out of a relationship. And that's the danger of what you're talking about. And we need to be in relationship because humans are herd animals. We are not animals that live by themselves. We are herd animals. And we yep. need a herd. I agree. Well,
1: I think um, this is probably a good place for us to pause. For mm-hmm. all the folks that are out there listening, we will have links in the show notes to your websites, Dr. Weiss. But where would you right. like them to go just in terms of where the resources are? Uh, maybe just drop that, yeah. drop that in now.
0: They can go to drdougweiss.com. If it's about intimacy and intimacy intimacyanorexia.com. Uh, Any of those, there's tons of resources. We've got a lot of free stuff, newsletters, apps, stuff that can help people. And uh, we really want to see people get well. That's the joy of what I do. I've seen thousands of people get well.
1: Yeah, I love that. I love that. Well, thank you so much. And uh, I feel like there's probably a second conversation on the horizon at some point. I'm sure I'm going to get tons of questions and follow up from this one. So everybody that's out there, don't forget to man it forward. Share this conversation with somebody that you know needs to hear it, would enjoy it. This might be one of those episodes where, you know, you send it to your partner and you each individually listen to it and then discuss. That's all for this week. Thank you so much for tuning in. And until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off.